Good day, MedNam Nation. MedNam Nation. I don't know. Everyone seems to have nation after their podcast. Anyway, we'll give it a try and uh, see what you think. See what you say. Today's episode is another multi-part episode, and it's really intense. It's really special. So we are joined by a creator of mnemonics like no other. From all the research I've ever done, there's never been this type of material synthesized in such a way and really elaborated on from the typical techniques that we cover. So if you're new to medical mnemonics or mnemonics in general, this is probably not a good episode to start on. Just saying, go back to episode one, two, three, where we interview Alex Mullen and Nelson Dellis, who are great memory champions, and they really cover some of the basics for us. You can go to around episode eight and nine with Anthony Mativier that covers creating mnemonics from an instructor point of view. There's also the episode with Timothy Moser, the master of memory. That's a great place to gain some insights beforehand. This one is going to be a very advanced level of material. So Dr. Lev Golden Touch is the creator of an accelerated course in mnemonics and speed reading and accelerated learning. This material, a lot of it even goes way above my head. I've read his book, I've gone through some of the coursework, and speaking to him on the phone is actually so much more impressive. Now, I will say also that there were some audio quality issues. There's a lot of background noise. So this episode is definitely one that you want to listen to when you have time, when you're not distracted. This is probably not a good one to listen to in the car as you're driving around. Make sure you can listen and focus and probably take notes. There's a lot of dense material here. He uses some terminology that's different than what I'm used to as well. So that might be a little confusing. Like I use visual markers to describe visual mnemonics that I've created. He uses that in a completely different term. And he usually uses the word association to describe his visual associations to concepts. So there are some confusing points here to be aware of before we start. And then he goes into some really interesting descriptions from more basic topics, from chunking visual mnemonics together, such as having one anchor image and then attaching five, six, seven different linking images to the main one. So you can get a lot of memorization, a lot of conceptual training from this one image that has a lot of linking markers on it. He also speaks about memory palaces or mind palaces, as he calls them, to a completely different level. Instead of using a single house as your palace and using different rooms as your sort of small chunks within the palace and using different stations within the room, such as your bed, your closet, your dresser, any kind of furniture, any kind of different area. He uses memory cities or mind cities or similar terminology. And basically, he takes the one single house or palace to an extreme of an entire city. So he will visualize an entire city. He also takes mind mapping to an extreme where as opposed to the normal mind map where you have a central theme and then you have sort of ideas that sprout from the central theme on a two-dimensional drawing and then you have you know sub themes that go out from those main themes and then on and on. He actually visualizes them as a tree and these trees he places in a forest so he can go through his imaginary forest walking through checking out all the different trees that are all very complex mind maps. And then he talks about, I think in the second episode, flying through this forest so you can get active recall very rapidly. It's just mind-blowing some of the material that we cover in these episodes. So I hope you enjoy. It's very complex. Make sure you can sit down, listen to this quietly somewhere. I apologize for the noise ahead of time, and I hope you enjoy. Please give your feedback to this. There will be a lot of links to check out too. Dr. Lev has a lot of free material on his website, and 
please enjoy the material. Welcome to the Medical Menemist Podcast, your source for memory techniques and accelerated learning in higher education. Now, here's your host, Chase DeMarco. On today's show, we have Dr. Lev Golden Touch, who is an engineer, author, and accelerated learning trainer. He and his wife, Anne, are also experts in speed reading, memory, and accelerated learning techniques. He also blogs on a wide range of topics on ketostudy.com, and his wife, Anne, offers advanced training sessions for their experienced learners. Dr. Golden Touch, how are you doing today? I'm fine. Thank you. Well, I'm glad we could finally schedule this as I know I've been communicating with you for quite some time just via email and explaining how my process through trying to learn these techniques through medical school has been going and actually getting information directly from you, I think is going to be invaluable to the students. And there's a lot of techniques that I learned through your materials that I've never seen anywhere else. So I'm really excited to cover these materials today. Uh, Thank you. I'm honored to be here. Would you like to introduce any other aspects about your education or how you got into the speed reading and advanced learning, accelerated learning techniques? Well, I finished my PhD when I was 25 years old, and then I started to actually learn. Before that, I was working on degree, so I learned a lot of topics. Specifically, I tried to learn speed reading and memory techniques several times, and I failed. And there were some articles which explained why it is impossible. And then I met my wife, Anna. So when I asked her, what do you do? She said, I'm teaching memory and uh, speed reading. And I said, "Ah, okay, it's like astrology or some other stuff. Which is, uh, and she said, wait, you will see. I have a little trick. And uh, at some point she started to teach me and um, her methods worked much better than anything else that I uh, experienced. I'd love to hear that you also had some struggles when you initially began, because that is something I did. That's something I hear from a lot of listeners to this podcast and individuals I've talked to. So I think that's a very common theme and seeing that you can actually get over that benchmark is uh, exciting and enticing. Well, uh, there was a funny story. When I first started to work with Anna, she gave me some text, which was uh, not very well written, uh, not very interested, and printed on a bad paper. And she asked me to read it. I read it. And uh, I saw that I did it pretty well. And then she asked me, well, what did you learn from it? I said, "Uh, nothing. It had nothing valuable for me. So she started to laugh and said that I'm not a very good student. (laughs) So how did you get past that part or did she give you different materials to study from? Well, uh, yes, that was a part of it, but uh, a very different aspect is just provoking your curiosity, like asking all those questions which uh, make you interested in something. Uh, It's uh, one of the little tricks that Anna has and nobody else I know uses. And uh, this is also something that I do not know how to teach anyone. So if uh, anyone can afford one-on-one with Anna, he gets a portion of this. And uh, if he doesn't, then uh, I have a generic explanation of uh, asking five WH questions and Socratic questioning and stuff like that. But it's not like speaking with Anna. Anna is very special. So 
from my understanding now, especially after clarifying a few things before the interview began, is you've collaborated in the past with Anthony Mativier from the Magnetic Memory Method, who was on, I believe, episode eight and nine of this show. And you also helped Jonathan Levy get his course, uh, Becoming a Super Learner, off the ground, which is extremely popular from my understanding these days. And those are some of the materials I began with. But then when I read your book, The Key to Study Skills, there's a lot of material in there that seemed very advanced and that I was not aware of before. And I'm assuming some of that is also material that Anne covers in the advanced training sessions. It definitely. And some of it is just my uh, own material. I kind of, uh, I'm a practitioner. I try different things and see what works for me. And then if something works, I kind of uh, write about it and make it public knowledge. And uh, I'm happy to do that. Great. I have a list of different tools and tips that I'd like to cover through this interview, but just to get a little background on how your materials are produced or the format of them, is there a certain framework that you and Anna follow or is it very individualized? It's very individualized. We started from uh, Tony Buzan's uh, materials about speed reading, um, which was adapted by some uh, Russian group in the 80s. And uh, Anna was uh, educated by uh, a professor from that Russian group. I didn't have ch a chance to work with that professor. And then she, she did a lot of work by herself. Her original course that she taught was like 150 hours. And now we teach like four to six hours. So we, we were able to compress a lot of learning into a lot of very fast learning. And that sounds perfect for busy students like our mostly medical student audience who might not have a lot of time to take these extra courses and learn these extra skills in, in a much less compressed version? Well, uh, we have a lot of uh, medical students, especially Anna, and uh, I think that this uh, courses helps them very much. We get very good testaments from uh, all of the students, and there are different uh, venues where these courses help. Uh, we started from uh, different mnemonics for anatomy and stuff like that. Then we, pro we proceeded to some medical protocols and then uh, some uh, medical um, qualification tests. And from there, just anything. I did notice that you have quite a few patents when I was doing some background research. So I'm glad to see that you're very diverse and, and specifically in the medical field too. So you have some experience with the students and the business side of it too. Uh, less uh, of business, more of technology, and yes, definitely students. So it actually helps to to know a little bit about medicine, even for people who are not uh, medical students and doctors. Very true. When you're focusing more on medical students or graduate learners, are there certain starting points such as study schedules and setting goals that you would recommend, or do you start off with techniques and then come back to some of those later on? Well, uh, we definitely encourage the person to be focused. And uh, this is something a person has to do with himself or herself. So uh, during the initial uh, interview, which is like uh, two paragraphs in mail, I ask the person to describe his uh, interests and his goals. And uh, if those are not sufficiently interesting or not sufficiently inspiring, I kind of push into the right direction. And from there, it's his uh, own uh, work to, it's hard work to, to do all of the trainings that needs to be done. Okay, so 
once you've sort of tackled that problem or, or let's just take a, an example of a student that's approached you recently and you've decided that they do have an interesting schedule or some way that you can help them. I know you cover a lot of different topics for visual mnemonics and speed reading. Uh, is there one that you recommend students start with? Well, we often start with visualization because visualization allows uh, so many different tricks. Uh, not all of them have to do with uh, speed reading or mnemonics. Some of them are different psychological techniques which uh, really help in uh, real life situations. I am personally working on uh, on a new course which uh, kind of uh, builds upon this aspect of visualization. But uh, most of our materials have to do with using visualization for learning. So we started with visualization. Once a person is uh, capable of visualizing, uh, this visualization is used to create different funny or otherwise memorable images. Once those images are covered, we start more systematic approach, going into some memory techniques, which kind of uh, evolved. I started with memory packs and mind maps, and now I'm recommending PAO and mind paralysis. And in my courses, there are some very unique methods that were developed by me, like mental cities and mental forests. I use them for my own use, so I kind of uh, promoted them. Uh, they are unique and uh, my only. So yeah, there are different methods that you can try. Uh, only once a person is capable to remember like everything that he reads, we start reading, not before that, because it's very easy to read something if you do not need to remember it. Like uh, Woody Allen said, I read the entire War and Peace. It took me five minutes. It has to do with Russia. But if you really want to remember something and you want to speed reading, it's very hard work and it needs to be very systematic. Teaching speed reading is very hard and Anna is good at doing that. We don't have as much success in speed reading itself without Anna. Like anybody can uh, learn memory techniques and be quite good with that. But speed reading itself is better done with a trainer like Anna. We have about 60% success rate without a trainer and 95% success rate with Anna. So it's, uh, it's really something hard to master. Wow, that's a large difference. And I know when I began speed reading a little bit, my reading skills initially were pretty terrible. So with the increased speed, my comprehension did increase as well, but not not significantly as I've heard that it, it will happen if you learn some of the visualization techniques and the visual markers that you're attributing here as well. Well, we kind of think that uh, we can triple the reading speed and understanding at the same time. And one of the tricks there is that uh, as your speed increases, your understanding and accuracy increases as well up to a certain point. It works because it becomes more and more exciting simply to input the information so you do not get bored. For the audience's reference, what is your comprehension at different speeds? I'm not very good at low speeds. Uh, I have about 90% comprehension at uh, 1,000 words per minute. I have about 40% understanding about 4,000 words per minute. 10% understanding about 10,000 words per minute. Wow. 
That's really fast. I can't imagine trying to read that fast, even after the speed reading techniques that I've implored. It's a different methodology of speed reading. We do not actually teach it. It involves going through just the center of the paper. And as your visual angle increases, you kind of photograph or scan the whole paper into your brain, and then you read from your brain. Now, to a lot of people, that might sound less than scientific. Are there studies done on this, or how can you show a student that they can do this before, let's say, investing uh, large quantities of money or time into the training? Well, we do not do that with students. This is something that I do myself for 10,000 words per minute. At uh, 1,000 words per minute, there are certain studies that can uh, explain how to get there. And uh, this is actually something that we do step by step. And it, at each step, a person says, well, I cannot handle the next step. And then we show how it can be handled quite easily. Uh, jumping steps is not recommended because it can be very disoriented and discouraging. Got it. I love having that step-by-step -step method so you can reach benchmark and see how to reach the next level up. And for the audience's reference, in case they didn't catch past episodes on this, the average reading speed is about 250 words per minute, if I'm remembering correctly. Well, uh, even less, yeah. It depends on language. And the material you're reading, obviously, is going to greatly uh, differ your speed. Yes, of course. So getting into some of the techniques a little bit more in depth. I know that in particular, medical students really probably do best with having a list of tools and then having a process in which to use them, how to make visuals and mnemonics quickly and easily. Is there a particular list or where would you suggest that a student starts? Uh, usually with the students that go to Anna, I almost start with uh, advanced techniques. Uh, like uh, once the person is capable of visualizing, we go to marking the important aspects in each article, the aspects that the person needs to remember. Then we group those aspects in groups of three words. And for those three words, we generate the PAO imagery, which means the person doing connection with an object. So each uh, three gram of a group of three words can be described this way. And the group of three words is very unique because it's probably the smallest number of words that can represent an entirely new subject in a reliable way. Uh, we do add some details uh, on the object mainly, but sometimes also on the person in the visualization. So each visualization may cover more than three words, up to seven words or something like that. Once we have those people, we, we have two different roles. One is we are mind maps, and this is something that Anna teaches. And the other one is uh, more of a mind palace. In the mind palace setup, we place the people in the corners of the room, like four corners and four walls. And uh, so we have uh, in the same room like eight visualizations. Each of the visualizations is like seven words. So we can cover about 50 words just in one room. And then we connect the rooms in some kind of mind palace with very fixed itineraries. And uh, if needed, we can uh, collect several mind palaces one after another and generate larger mental objects. So this is usually useful with medical students whose protocols do not change. With engineering students, we usually go into the direction of the mind maps and flowcharts. Was that PAO as in person action object, which I've heard of for numbers, but not so much in this context? Yes, it's a unique adaptation in this context. Uh, I just took a concept from the number theory and applied it differently. I might have invented it in this context. 
Oh, that's awesome. So PAO you start with and then transition that to mind maps. And then those are placed inside of a mind palace or memory palace, or how do they correlate? No, it's uh, either mind maps or mental palaces, but we can also mix and match between them. It's uh, just up to you. Uh, mind palaces are usually easier for people to understand and remember, but very hard to manipulate. So once you have a mind palace, it's uh, very fixed. Mind maps are very easy to manipulate, so if you really need to manipulate the information and to add upon it, uh, mind maps are much more useful. In case you didn't catch all of that, Lev is talking about some pretty advanced memory techniques here. He takes the normal visual images that we talk about in many past episodes and chunks them into groups of three for basic learners using the PAO method as his anchor marker. Then he chunks up to seven images for more advanced learners. Then he places these images that are now consisting of around seven different associations into a memory palace. So let's say a single room in a palace had five stations. Then you would have five stations times seven associations per chunk, or 35 associations that you could fit into this single room with only five stations. Then he extends this out into multiple palaces and even into a city-wide scape of palaces. Wow, this is an interesting combination of techniques for sure. And I can see how powerful this could be once you get used to using all these tools that most people associate as dissimilar tools and then combining them in this unique fashion. Well, it works up to 1 million objects. I never tried more. A million objects. Wow. Can you give an example of a PAO for maybe an anatomy subject or something that a student has brought to your attention before? Usually I ask people to write me and I answer them. And uh, I do not remember my own uh, visualizations because they are very easy to come up with and uh, usually I do not need them. Sometimes Anna comes up with examples and she explains them to me and these examples are quite funny, so I kind of remember them. So, for example, one of the three words was mandibula. And uh, she said, well, it's a man who is a debil. So the person is a man who is not very smart, and this is mandibula. <laughs> okay, so you get very creative with these visualizations, and that seems to be another area that students often get stuck in, especially when they're new to developing these visualizations. Are there particular tips and tricks to sort of get over their own mental blocks? Well, this is a little bit complex, and again, this is an area which is better covered one-on-one with Anna. I provide like 10, 10 different techniques to mix and match to overcome the mental barriers. Anna uses about 50 techniques, which she kind of pinpoints to the personal needs. Uh, the first uh, and the most important issue is just to let go. People who are too obsessed and, or too much in control cannot visualize very well. They're, they're not creative enough. They store their visualization. Then uh, do not expect too much. People which are too judgmental start uh, saying, well, I have this visualization. It is not too good. They're changing it constantly and cannot fix upon one visualization. The idea is to fix on the first things that comes up and add details to it, like uh, the first situation that jumps into your brain, no matter how stupid. It kind of takes time to teach your brain to come up with good visualizations uh, without uh, special preparation. So the first week is uh, usually given 
to that. And even then, people usually do not succeed with it for the first three or four months. So to help up, we use visual dictionaries, like uh, stable visualization. You can uh, think for as much as you want and generate a visualization which is stable for a certain word. Because uh, our vocabularies are usually not that big, like 1,000, 2,000 words. And um, if there are rare words that we reuse, then it's kind of easier to build something for them. This technique is usually very useful, especially for people who struggle with abstract visualizations. Ah, a lot of material to digest here. So let me see if I can summarize going forward. So you need to initially be very creative. You need to practice and seek coaching if need be to create sort of a visual dictionary or build different techniques to be faster at creating these visual markers. And then you can start combining them such as a PAO method. And then further from there would be mind maps and mind palaces or memory palaces to organize and chunk larger sets of data. Well, this is almost correct with one exception. You don't have a you don't need any particular skill at the beginning. You can be as stupid, as uh, uncreative, or fixated as you want to be. And with a good guidance, or even if you're yourself sufficiently motivated and do not get stuck, I mean, just read my book or listen to our lectures, then you will be okay. You don't have anything, you don't need anything but hard work. If you are willing to work and you don't fixate, then you will be okay. Okay, awesome. Now, Discussing your book a little bit more, the key to study skills, some of the tips that I recall from there that I had not really run across anywhere else were things like the etymology method, where you give direction to using the root of different words and and finding the history of it to help you create a visual mnemonic, something that's maybe had a different meaning in the past can give you a good visual that you can use for a common context, correct? This is uh, something which I did not uh, invent because it's field of linguistic. I just started to apply it to memory learning. That's it. Uh, like uh, learning languages and stuff like that. This is uh, something that uh, linguists are doing quite well. So why not anyone else? Great point. I love the mix and match of your different areas of study. Is the the Osborne checklist, is that more from an engineering standpoint? Because I hadn't run across that before your book either. It's from uh, someone who was um, working on creativity like 40 or 50 years ago. I do not remember which of the sources was it. Uh, maybe the Bono, I'm not really sure. But it, it, this is something which was uh, used in the 60s. And as far as I remember, it was developed uh, somewhere in the military. I'm trying not to jump around too much, but I have so many questions on so many topics. <laughs> so to to clarify for the audience again, so some possible techniques for creativity would be the etymology method, uh, looking at the history of a word. Osborne's checklist is a creative way of brainstorming. So adapting a current image that you have or modifying it, magnifying it, minimizing it, rearranging things can give you different ways to to combine a visual that you create. And that's really just talking on a minimal level of creating one image or maybe a couple images that are related to each other. And you also have some interesting methods for, I believe the term you guys use is anchor markers versus linking markers, and then how hyperlinking can maybe come into play. Do you have some ways to describe that for the audience or examples? 
Well, this is uh, my personal way of working with materials. I did not really see that specific literature of uh, self-improvement. And the idea is very simple. You can read a book or you can browse a web page. When you browse a web page, you have those small links which you press and go to other pages and then you can go back and forward and the entire internet is uh, at, at your pleasure. So if your memory works in the same way, then you are very effective at using it. Got it. So the hyperlinking is a computer term for those words which can be pressed and then go to something else. Now let me see if this makes sense. So if we're using, for an example for a student, a textbook, you're suggesting initially, if they're just starting off with these techniques, to not focus on speed reading, not focus on how quickly they get through the material, but maybe beforehand, get yourself in the right mindset or meditate or something to be creative, and then start thinking of these visual markers. You don't need to meditate. Instead, we have a technique which we call reading, and uh, it is also not exactly our own invention. Before you start reading a book, you kind of go through it very, very fast, like uh, as fast as you can. And certain things just jump to your attention. And then you close the book and you sit for a while, like a, mo a minute or something like that, maybe less, depending on the size of the material. And you kind of daydream of how you would uh, attack the same subject. You generate the questions that you have or how you can use the subject in your future. There are different creativity methods to generate the interest. And you build up your interest. Once you're interested in the subject, only then you start reading. That actually sounds a lot more beneficial. I think uh, I probably hear a lot from Anthony Mativier about meditating beforehand and how that can be useful in certain areas of these techniques, but I can definitely see how brainstorming before would get the creative juices flowing and whatever images pop in your head when you're just focusing on the material before even starting to read. Now, once you're reading, you can implement those visual markers quite simply. Well, the, the focus of us versus Anthony or someone else is uh, we focus on reading and actually acquiring useful uh, information. The people who study memory as an art need to address it as a sport or as an art form. And it's a very different challenge which requires more uh, dedication. Uh, with meditation, you do not need to meditate before you memorize. It's best to meditate in the morning and in the evening just to clear up the thoughts. And the main uh, use is uh, for having better sleep. Uh, sleep is very important because it kind of pushes information from uh, short-term memory to long-term memory. Listeners, I want to thank you for listening to the show, and I hope you are sharing it with your classmates, co-workers, and anyone interested in medicine and education. The show is growing rapidly, and I want to sincerely thank each of you for taking the time to listen. There are many things you could be listening to now or spending your time on, so it means a lot that you find value in this material. If you have any suggested topics, please find FreeMedEd on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or email freemededweb at gmail.com. We actually have so many topics that we would love to cover and would actually be interested in releasing episodes more frequently than just once a week, but to do this we need help. It takes a lot of time to find and research guests, schedule meetings, record the show, edit the episodes, and then post all of this to the relevant feeds. If you would like to help out, I can train you on networking, audio editing, and social media. This can reflect positively on your CV as well. So if you would like more episodes or just want to learn new skills, reach out to any of our free med ed accounts.
it's it's okay to speed read and remember stuff. And uh, when we check our understanding, like uh, 20 minutes after reading, we will get very good understanding. But how much will we remember the next day or the day afterwards? The memory techniques for long term are slightly different from the techniques which are used in short term. I see. And seeing that most uh, students are probably persistently sleep deprived, that's not great for moving this material into long term memory. It's an issue I have with uh, extreme productivity. People who are after productivity often become much less productive because uh, many of the productivity techniques uh, start clashing with the sleep schedules or the energy or the creativity and procrastination. You kind of uh, have to do nothing sometime of your day, which is like 20% of your day or something like that, just to be effective. Something to definitely consider when a student is making their study schedule then, as it's probably usually packed from the second they wake up until the second they go to sleep. It's not a problem. We just recommend uh, Pomodoro breaks, like uh, 10 minutes for every hour, something like that. Okay. And then in the morning and in the evening, you can do meditation or something else, like swimming or running or music, whatever. Now, for a lot of your visualization techniques, and I know you have these for speed reading, image training, visual memory, there are a lot of tools on your websites. Are there any particular ones to start with, or can you explain how some of those are training these types of skills? This is a hard one. When we just started, Anna had personally to sit with a person for every hour that the person is studying and see how the person is behaving and witness any detail of wrong studying and stuff like that. And she used to give some exercises like read this page in a certain way and so on. And we needed to reduce the number of hours that we spend with the student. So today we provide students with various thematic training techniques and they ask to do one hour of reading and 30 minutes of computerized training per day. And sessions with Anna are twice a month just to fix the most uh, pressing issues. Perfect. So these are tools that are free on the website and students can use them to start with uh, and get a little bit of practice before even starting with Anna, who can then sort of tutor and make necessary corrections here and there to optimize their learning. Yes, we developed them also, some of them as an app, which uh, was kind of frozen and which I hope to unfroze real soon. We will eventually publish the app, it's just a matter of time. I have several projects and I need to juggle between them and some projects just get stuck in the background. (laughs) I definitely understand how that works. I've got a lot of those juggling right now as well. You did mention that students can make a lot of mistakes and obstacles and besides scheduling training with Anna, is there anything that they should try to do on their own first or anything to maybe common mistakes that they can look out for so they don't start getting into bad habits? Well, it's very common uh, getting into bad habits and uh, actually it's uh, not very bad as, uh, as long as you know how to get out of that. In my book, I described several uh, bad habits which are very common and the techniques which allow you to get out of the places where you get stuck. Some things can be really damaging. For example, when you study speed reading, you study 
how you move your eyes, uh, so-called saccading techniques of uh, various sorts. And if you do not move your eyes properly or do not get enough rest between moving your eyes, you may get hurt. You may actually get hurt in various ways like uh, eye strain, headaches and stuff like that. We added certain techniques like eye gymnastics and so on to help. But you need to listen to your body very accurately and very carefully. And if you feel that something goes wrong, you should be able to react to it. And then there are common problems like not getting enough sleep, which is uh, one of the first in the list. The people who do not get enough sleep, uh, they work hard and notice degradation in performance. And this is uh, really hard because they start working yet more and then they see further degradation and so on. It's really a vicious cycle. So sleep is very important and working enough but not too hard is also very important. Like seeing your limits and not pressing yourself too much further. Lack of sleep, saccadic reading, which uh, students can look up exactly what that is if they're interested, but the way you move your eye across a particular line or across the text, that probably explains why I get still fatigued quite quickly when trying to increase my speed is I don't have that technique down perfectly by any means. About the technique, it's not straining or physical liability. It's just getting the technique and the technique is quite hard to, to learn and to teach. Anna like magnifies her camera on your eyes and see how your eyes move. And this is the way that she directs it. She also provides you some focal points which change with time. And uh, basically, you cannot read very fast until you master your peripheral vision. Only once you master your peripheral vision, you can go up with speed. Oh, that's cool that she's actually videotaping your eyes. So you, you have physical evidence of the mistakes that you might be making. Uh, for privacy issues, we will not share it. Okay. And for the memory types of issues or mnemonics creation, I know that an issue I've been told I've made in the past and when I first started off, I know I did, was adding too many markers to one thing, I guess too many linking markers to that anchor marker or creating weak markers. What are some ways to maybe avoid that initially or is it just a learning process? Well, even using markers is something which should be avoided in this sort of podcast because it's not something which is uh, scientifically uh, proven. We kind of use it to simplify certain uh, more scientific ideas. It's like analogy which is easy to remember, like a catchy phrase for something which is more complex and scientifically sound. We have different visualizations and these visualizations connect uh, to each other like uh, associations. So we need to have stable associations and those associations need to involve as much of your brain as possible to become yet stronger. So we kind of add different things that already are inside your brain, like your personal memories, your senses, your brain chemicals, like uh, something which is associated with excitement. One of the strongest uh, forces in memorizing something is so-called flashbulb memory. When you have a traumatic event, you remember everything about it. So we kind of generate pivotal experiences if we really want to remember something. Maybe I'm using the wrong terminology or uh, mixing things up. I was under the impression, I thought that visual markers are similar to products that you might not be aware of that medical students use a lot uh, in the aspect of picmonic and sketchy micro or sketchy medicine, where they create these cartoonish 
associations for medical terminology. Is that what you agree is an accurate term for visual marker or is it a different term? Is that your visualization and association term? No, we have several kinds of visualizations. One of those visualizations are like cartoonish, like you said, and this is perfectly fine. But the visual markers are things that kind of jump to you out of the page when you read it. Things that you mark with a highlighter when you read a book. Ah, I see. Then as I'm using that term in a completely different manner. So any of my other resources or any other podcasts I mention it, that's what I mean is the association being made. That was my understanding of the term. So, okay, good to know that we're on the same page as far as the goal. We're just calling it different things. It's, it's okay. It's really hard to get it right with the terminology and we kind of reinvent the terminology ourselves. And there are sometimes we do not agree about different things and how we should call them. And this is also fine. I think that can help you. It's fine because it works. It's very practical and engineering based. So you you try different things, you mix and match, you create a system, you test the system, and if the system works fine, then you're happy. And if it's not fun enough, you innovate, you add blocks, you remove blocks. As the same way is a personalized speed reading or learning methodology. You can add things which are not uh, there, you can invent things, and it's okay. Okay, perfect. Good to understand that. There was another question I was thinking of that a term that you mentioned earlier, and I didn't quite hear it perfectly, I think it was an association to larger mind maps, and you said something like mind cities or... Mind cities and mind forests are two methods that I developed personally. They appear only in my uh, masterclass, which is paid and not very cheap, and they allow you to remember up to one million objects. Most of the methods that are used today allow you to remember up to 1,000 objects, 2,000 objects. Most of the memory championships stop at 2,000 objects. There is no point going beyond that. When you learn something from your, from your books, from your reading, for your own use, then you might need more than 1,000 or 2,000 objects. And then you need somewhat uh, more scalable approach. So I take it uh, three zeros above 1,000. Wow. Yeah, I guess you have to develop tools to suit the need. So if a memory championship has a certain need, a certain limitation, then the tools are going to be associated with that. But when you're talking about complex materials, such as an entire degree or something to that aspect, you need a much more robust technique. So can you describe a little bit about how that works or how it compares to mind mapping and similar techniques? It's about using the same two techniques in a different combination. Memory cities is like city planning where each of the houses is a mental palace. So it's like a mind map where you place mental palaces within. And mental forests are just the opposite. You have like different trees where each tree is a mind map. And you place those trees in a forest where you can walk by, which is actually a mental palace. Wow. So I'm just reusing the tools that should be already known with uh, some minor modifications, which allows them to be better used together. That sounds like it would easily become so complex that it could be overwhelming for a, a learner. How do you keep track of something like that? Or what type of rehearsal practice do you use? Well, that's a very good question. Usually I use very, very simple uh, techniques. When I need 
to really remember something, I write it down in a long list, like three words which remind me of that, which is my uh, so-called anchor marker. And then when I uh, want to review the subjects that I needed to remember or needed to do, I go over those three words and try to memorize or to re recall the entire process or the entire idea that I had to deal with. And now we do it in different time intervals. So uh, I do it the next day. I review the aspects of the day that was before. And then probably several months later, I will review the entire list of aspects that had to do with a certain project. And then maybe a year after, I will review the issues that I didn't complete or the issues that I uh, marked for myself to study later. And this way, I will remember a lot of stuff for a lot of time. Okay, so to compare it to a practice that a lot of medical students use is quite frequently they'll use a program like Anki flashcards because of the built-in space repetition, but they'll put regular no-card flashcard material on there and then review it the next day, review it in a few days, in a few weeks, and then whatever material they're having trouble with, they can review more frequently. But this sounds like something that could either replace or at least supplement that material, adding a, a visual to the flashcard or to the topic. For me, it's faster than Enki, and it allows me to view several aspects at once. With flashcards, you get to view one flashcard at a time. And when I have the aspects in a list, I can review like five of them at the same time. So I run several videos in front of me. Wow. I'm even having trouble comprehending how that would work. but It just sounds so complex and way above my skill level. It's like a picture within picture, you kind of generate several movies, like when you view television and you have 16 or somewhat, uh, give it a number of channels, you can see the entire program and see all of the channels playing at the same time. <laughs> this is an advanced technique, we do not teach it. I gotcha. Okay. Yeah, I'm trying to picture if I was walking through a cartoon or video forest and each tree in the forest is like a, a mind map, but even that would only be as quick as my visualization of walking through could be. And then I'd also be afraid of forgetting a tree here or there or just missing material. To speed it up, you need to be flying through the forest. So you kind of imagine a Halloween setup where you kind of uh, a ghost flying through and not limited by physical dimension. Then you can uh, go up to review the, the whole landscape and go down to focus on something. Actually, I forgot to mention it in my course, any credit. So thank you for mentioning it. This is a scoop I, I need to add it to my own course. I forgot. <laughs> Glad I could be of assistance then. It seems like there's a lot of techniques and I've even read some things in the past that mention using maybe techniques from studying dreams or from cartooning that can really help your creativity. And like you said, flying through the forest as opposed to walking, how a lot of people are used to maybe flying in a dream or you might see that in a cartoon or a movie of some sort. Do you find that knowledge of maybe the structure or just being used to these types of filmography and media help in memory techniques a lot? That's a good question. There are studies that show that video games help. There are studies that show that different uh, circuits related stuff helps. For example, juggling or magic or something like that. I never did something which had to do with uh, circus stuff. But once I had a student who was a magician and his visualization and visual memory were far superior to mine. Uh, music also helps. Musicians can, or dancers, 
can remember long sequences of objects much more than I can. For example, when I take my children, I uh, teach them music. I do not teach them speed reading just yet, although they are already in the age where they can learn speed reading, and Anna had some sessions with them. I do not yet teach them speed reading per se. That's a good point. Yeah, other skills such as music and just the ability that you have to develop to to produce music and to read music could be beneficial. And I've also read a lot of things regarding being bilingual or multilingual being very useful uh, in this aspect as well. Well, uh, I do not really have something to compare with. I am multilingual, so I'm multilingual for as long as I can remember myself. So it's not that I was uh, different. Good point. I guess you can't compare the two. Well, that's it for part one. I know there's a lot of material. I hope you took some notes. We didn't want to drag this one on too long, so please do come back next week. Check out number two. We'll cover a lot more material. Practice this week's material in the interim, and we will see you next week.